HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. It's Monday. It's 12.01. You know what it means. It means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting from the Heritage Radio Network live in Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So we're going to start with our joys and sorrows, and then I have a really amazing program ahead. Uh, I have Joe Fassler here from the New Food Economy, and I have uh, Sally Lee from Raffi. We're going to be talking about contract farming. Uh, but first, I want to give a shout out to the wonderful Marin McKenna, a journalist I admire extraordinarily, who will be publishing a new book. She's she's a writer for Wired, and she's been on this show quite a few times to talk about antibiotic resistance. Anyway, she pulled up this story um, from Cranes, New York, on March 23rd, and I'm going to quote a little bit from it. Uh, a March analysis by financial services provider Farm Credit East of the potential impact of enhanced immigration enforcement in New York found that 1,080 farms in the state are highly vulnerable, meaning that they could go out of business or shrink significantly. If all undocumented workers were deported, the state's agricultural production would likely be reduced by $1.37 billion, or 24%. More than 21,000 agricultural workers would lose their jobs, including U.S. citizens as well as immigrants, and more than 23,000 non-farm jobs could be cut as well. The economic ripple effect would decrease non-farm activity by 7. $2 billion, according to the report, and would require New York to import more food. So this would be, in a microcosm, the macro story of what would happen if Trump gets his way with the immigration story. Um, we will see skyrocketing food prices. We will see shortages. We will see gigantic imports from other countries. It's going to be a windfall for everyone else who produces food and a disaster for the American farm economy and rural life in America. So just, you know, keep that in mind. We're talking about just New York State. We're talking about a cost of $7.2 billion plus the $1.37 billion of agricultural production. I mean, it's a, in Trump's words, a disaster. Okay, so next thing. Good news for shareholders in Monsanto. The USDA has dropped its plan to test for glyphosate residues in corn syrup. Did you guys hear about this? It was in the Huffington Post. I put it on my webpage. Um, The plan to test has been in the making for over a year, and it was meant to start in April, according to uh, this aforementioned Huffington Post article, which was published on the 23rd of March. It has been shelved as the agency cites a better use for those funds in testing honey for various chemical residues, which is okay, but they don't include glyphosate. It's an excellent article. I highly recommend reading it. It's on my Facebook page for What Doesn't Kill You, so take a look at it. And then lastly, um, I have been corresponding quite a bit with um, a wonderful upstate dairy farmer named Lorraine Lewandrowski. Um, She tweets under New York Farmer. I recommend that you follow her. Anyway, she has been um, sending me stuff about the the relief efforts for the Texas wildfires. Um, 
if you haven't been following the story, and I confess I wasn't particularly keyed into it myself, um, sometime around the first week of March, there were uh, roughly about 500,000 acres uh, burned in the Texas panhandle and other states, but especially in Texas. Killed a whole lot of animals, um, and it burned off all of the grass for those who remain. Um, So farmers from all over the United States have united to send forage for the cattle. For example, 63 out of 81 counties in Michigan, which is a big dairy state, have been sending hay. Um, in a series of convoys, and there are uh, convoys rolling out of New York State as well. I'm going to be talking with some of the organizers in the coming week. Um, I'm hoping to put together a program about this, uh, so stay tuned for that. But I do have one note to make about this. You know, Texas is famously Republican. Governor Abbott has asked for federal assistance. Can you note once yet again how the thugs hate the federal government until they need the federal government? When are these fuckers going to learn? Government is not all bad. Vote Democratic. Anyway, we'll take a quick break with a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with the excellent Joe Fassler and Sally Lee uh, from Raffi will be joining us on the phone. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have a really great conversation about contract farming. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is uh, What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Today, we're going to be talking about contract farming in the poultry industry. And my guests are Joe Fassler, uh, the senior editor for New Food Economy, a magazine where he covers the politics, economics, and culture of the changing food system. His food reporting for TheAtlantic.com has been a finalist for the James Beard Foundation Award in Journalism. And he joins me today in the studio. Thanks for coming, Joe. I really Glad appreciate it. Glad to be here, it. Katie. Thanks. Um, the, our other guest will be Sally Lee. Uh, she is... Um, she, uh, this is her bio. I'm just reading it off her bio. Works directly with poultry farmers and manages Rural Advancement Foundation Internationals, otherwise known as RAFI, uh, Contract Ag Reform Program. You've probably seen it more as RAFI than Rural Advancement Foundation International, but I thought it would be good to spell out what the acronym means. Um, she has a background in social justice, including working at RAFI previously for four years with the Agricultural Justice Project, a social justice certification program for farms and businesses. Boy, I'd like to hear more about that. Um, she also worked as a social Justice Consultant for Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, the FAO, in contributing to the development of the sustainability assessments for food and agriculture systems indicators, which are used globally as a framework for policy development and business assessment. Um, welcome to the program, Sally. Hi, thanks. Oh, I'm so glad you guys are here. So, Joe, before, uh, see, Joe is in the studio, so he has the advantage of having had a little chit-chat with me before you came on, Sally. Um, But I want both of you, before we get into the the bulk of this conversation, I want you both to talk a little bit about your organization. So, Joe, you start with the New Food Economy. Tell us what that is and how people can access it. Um, And then, Sally, just give us a little, you know, like three-sentence thumbnail about Rafi, Okay. So, Joe, go. Sure, yeah. So um, I write for The New Food Economy, and we're a digital magazine that you can read at newfoodeconomy.com. And we cover the, like I said in in your intro, Mm -hmm. uh, the politics and economics and culture of food. Um, We write sort of across the spectrum. Um, You know, a lot of food publications either will specialize in agriculture or they'll talk about fine dining. Um, We kind of do everything from farm to plate and in between. Um, But we also try to cover, you know, the food system through, um, through the lens of, of the, 
dynamic change that's happening um, right. everywhere as, as a result of cultural change, as a result of technological change, economic change, policy change. Um, and we kind of look at these pressure points um, that are you know, happening throughout um, and try to tell the human stories of the people who are caught up in that. Right, right. Excellent. I highly recommend the magazine. You can get, get it online. Um, just go to newfoodeconomy.com, right? And, yeah, and absolutely. hit subscribe. We're there every day. Boom. It's yeah, we great. have a newsletter too, great, which, is, which is a lot of fun that um, features some little extra tidbits not on our site. So oh, excellent. I didn't know else. about that. So um, Sally Lee, tell us a little bit about Rafi. Sure. Uh, Rafi is a nonprofit organization. We are based in North Carolina, but we work nationally and internationally, and our mission is to create um, marketplaces and policies and thriving communities that support family farms. So that brings us into a lot of different areas of work, one of which is contract agriculture reform. Mm -hmm. We've had a program on contract agriculture reform since the 80s. We also do direct support with farmers in crisis, so that's another area where we interact with a lot of contract farmers. Right. We're going to be talking about that in another show at a future date. Okay, Okay. ladies and gentlemen, let us begin. Joe, the reason you are here and Sally is on the phone is that you wrote a piece in February called Playing Chicken that described not only how contract growing operates through the profile of a grower, but more importantly, uh, it describes a recent class action suit which, quote, alleges that five of the country's largest poultry companies, Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson Farms, and Coke Foods, have colluded for years to keep farmers in debt and underpaid. Describe that suit and what that success would mean for contract growers if they prevail in this suit. Sure. So I think the first thing that's important to point out is there's actually two major yes. um, class action suits against um, the poultry industry right now. Um, one is the one that you mentioned that's that's on mm-hmm. the behalf of fire, uh, farmers. But the first one was actually on behalf of chicken uh, buyers. Basically on, chicken, on, on distributors and grocers. Exactly. Right? And what they said was that... Um, that the major integrators, you know, which is the word for the big chicken companies, Tyson, right. um, Sanderson Farms, Purdue, um, and, you know, many others, um, used a database called AgriStats um, to kind of collude and exchange business information in a way that that created a, a non-competitive, uncompetitive environment. Right. So basically it was this, you know, like a clearinghouse for information right. where they could kind of monitor um, one another's, you know, uh, various numbers of all kinds of you know different data and stats without actually having to necessarily get into a room and and talk about it. Right. So and say, I'm going to charge this, so you're going to charge that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yes, now th- both suits allege that some of that does happen, but the sort of the sort of crux of it is is that allegedly this central clearinghouse is was a way for them to swap their sort of business secrets. Um, so right. in terms of the farmer suit, um, what they is what is alleged is that um, they were able to uh, say, okay, you know, we have certain farmers in this neck of the woods, um, cause it has geographic information too. Right. Yeah. So it allowed them to sort of specialize, um, in different regions of the country and not have to compete with one another. Um, which if true would make a much more difficult, um, situation for farmers because they don't have multiple buyers to sell to or, or multiple oh, yeah. contractors to work with. So right. that's kind of the crux of it. They, it's saying that this collusion has artificially suppressed the kind of incomes that farmers were making because the business has had this advantage by being in conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Sally, why don't you tell us a little bit about why growers get into the contracting business? Um, because it really seems like if you do any, any reading at all about being a poultry farmer, it's, it seems like a losing proposition from the get go. So how is it that they are able to entice farmers? And Joe just mentioned the fact that they were making more money in the past. And then with the price fixing, that's allegedly gone on in the last, I think it's about 10 years isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. They are making less money. So, you know, walk us through, like, why would somebody get into the contracting business and how would they, how could they see that as a a winning solution for them in terms of generating income? Sure. Well, the stories that farmers told in the past are certainly part of it um, because many new farmers getting into it now have heard from Um, older growers or maybe even family members that this was a good business Mm -hmm. and they don't realize the changes that have happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But another thing that's really useful to understand is that this industry is very geographically concentrated. Right. And it's very prevalent in areas where there isn't necessarily another major industry or where other farming 
uh, ventures are not as lucrative. And that's really in what we call the broiler belt in the southeast. Right. So if you're a farmer in these regions and you don't have a whole lot of options, and when a company comes in and starts holding, like, town hall meetings where they're recruiting for new contracts and new houses, then that's a really big deal. Um, and a lot of farmers will see this as an opportunity to maybe bring their kids home to work on the farm or um, as a way to establish some cash flow that they desperately need because some of their other farming ventures are not uh, going so well. And the storyline that I think is really important that the companies will promote at these town hall meetings and use as a way to recruit farmers is that this contract is going to be a steady job, unlike other aspects of agriculture. Mm -hmm. It's going to be guaranteed income. It's going to be guaranteed cash flow. And they promise farmers that this is an honest industry that operates on honest competition. So the harder you work, the more you'll get paid. And farmers are very hardworking people. So this sales pitch really appeals to that entrepreneurial American farming spirit. Um, And then what they don't tell farmers, which is what we... This is where we wind up working with folks, um, is that that contract is actually loaded with loopholes for the company. So once they get the deal worked out and farmers have signed on to hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of debt, the company can come back and change the deal and leave the farmers stranded under that debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings me to Joe's question, which was, um, in your piece, you mentioned that the integrator, and that would be, again, this is the big chicken companies, the Tyson, the Purdue, et cetera, um, that they keep tabs on the amount of debt that uh, their growers acquire in the service of either building or upgrading housing. And I'm just wondering, how do they get access to that information? Isn't that private? Shouldn't that be private? Is Right. It- so, I mean... Tyson denies this. Uh, I've asked them directly about about it, um, and I haven't spoken with, say, Purdue and, and others. But um, my guess is that they would say no; that they, they don't do that. Um, I, you know, anecdotally, uh, I, I've spoken to farmers who who say that that is the case. I, I bet mm-hmm. Sally can chime in on this. But I think there's a couple ways that it could theoretically happen, even if it wasn't necessarily a, a strategy that was by design. And and one of um, one of those ways is that you know the chicken um, houses are sort of upgraded in waves. Um, mm-hmm. The farmers that I that I talked to, to in the piece actually gave a, a pretty good sort of nutshell history of how chicken growing houses have changed over the years because as technology. Um, comes up, it sort of rolls in in waves through the houses. So I think, you know, the industry has a, has a good anecdotal sense of when the last required upgrades that they stipulated came into place. And, and sometimes there are $200,000, $300,000 upgrades that are necessary, and they're amortized over, uh, you know, often, a, you know, a 20-year or more contract. Uh-huh. So, sure. so there's usually a sense of, of kind of where people are. Um, in that regard, um, the farmers I spoke to for the piece said that, you know, she saw she would see um, the local Tyson representatives, uh, you know, also meeting with the farm credit people in, in the local restaurant in town. And there may be I can't speak to that. Um, right, I've right. heard that anecdotally. But um, absolutely, there's these trends that that they know when they've been asking folks generally to make really big changes. You know, you you make me wonder whether um, because you you were just mentioning like the Farm Credit Bureau is often a lender, right, or mm-hmm. something like that. Yes. There's a bank that's affiliated with the. Farm. I, I don't quite understand how that financing works, but I do know that there are uh, institutions that deal specifically with agricultural concerns in terms of low advancing money. And it makes me wonder, and Sally, by all means, chime in on this. It makes me wonder if those institutions are colluding with uh, with the big companies. Um, on a certain level, like well, a company will come in and say, hey, um, Farm Credit Bureau person A, uh, we want to you know, generate some upgrades because for whatever reason we need these upgrades and we want to talk to you about pricing alone and how, you know, I mean, I'm wondering how much influence they have over the, the actual lending institution and the types of loans that they will write yeah. um, One to thing that's, for growers. Sure. One thing that's definitely true, and, and I'd be curious to hear Sally's perspective on this, because Sally, you'd know a lot more than me. It, it, generally, um, poultry farmers, I think, tend to have some of the most debt um, in agriculture, yes. period. And and okay. for whatever reason, they are able to get a lot more um, <laughs> they're deeper and deeper into debt than than others are. Oh, so, so there are norms there that, you know, their ability to get 
loans when they're deeply underwater yeah. seems to be different. Um, but I'm not sure really how that came to be. Uh, and Sally, I wonder if you have any, yeah. any thoughts. Um, a couple, actually. There, there's some direct reasons why that is, which is related to taxpayer money. Um, but uh-huh. one thing just first that's useful to, to understand is sort of the process of when a company is coming into a new area. They will work with banks, with private banks, with farm credit or um, with others to discuss the fact that they're coming in, they're going to be expanding by 500 houses, and they'll give cash flow estimates uh, and kind of work out, basically discuss with banks what they're looking at in terms of farmer debt load. Um, so banks are very much a part of the process of expanding these operations, so they're involved. And the farmer's paycheck will often go from the company to the bank uh, directly rather than the farmer receiving a paycheck and then paying the bank back their debt. It's called an assignment process. Wow. Um, so there is definitely, while it might not be a collusion, there's definitely cooperation. Uh-huh. in the system. Um, but the other thing that's really important about taxpayers is that uh, we actually finance these loans uh-huh. in large part, or we back them. So the Farm Service Agency and the SBA Small Business Agency or Association. Administration. Um, Small yeah. Business Administration. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Both are um, able to back up to a 90 95% guarantee loans that meet certain criteria within our regulations. And a big portion of those backings go towards chicken operation loans, um, especially for, for the FSA and increasingly now for the SBA. So what that means is that a farmer uh, is going to come into a bank and they're going to say, I would like to get a $1.5 million loan to build these chicken houses. And the bank will say, well, we think that's too risky because we've seen some foreclosures. We don't want to take that on. But the farmer can then apply to FSA mm-hmm. and get a guarantee. And if they mm-hmm. come back to the bank with that guarantee, the bank has very little risk in this sure. lending at this point because the taxpayer would be taking the major hit if the farm were to go under and, and they couldn't sell it off for the amount that was owed. Um, so the bank is now willing to make larger loans and more frequent loans mm-hmm. than they would necessarily without that guarantee. So that's a really important Guaranteed loans are a really important part of the credit infrastructure for farmers. They help um, socially disadvantaged farmers get access to credit that they wouldn't otherwise have, and they help farmers in emergencies. But in the case of poultry loans, they're being abused a little bit by the industry because the industry knows that that's a way for farmers to take on excessive amounts of debt. Right that they really would have a very difficult time paying back. Um, and that leads me to the mm-hmm. next question for you, Sally, which is that you have a great page on your website on Rafi uh, on the poultry industry facts and figures. And among them is the average income for a grower under contract to one of the top five integrators. So can you talk a little bit about those figures? Because they were a real eye-opener for me. I mean, some people, you know, so far below the poverty level for a family of four on the regular score that it's just kind of mind-blowing and it speaks to this ability to borrow more money than you should be able to. It's kind of, it reminded me of the housing bubble where people who had an income of maybe $30,000 were buying houses that were, you know, so far beyond their, or flip, buying and flipping houses. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Like your hairdresser would own five houses, have mortgages on five houses. You know what I mean? So it kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of that a little bit. And I wanted you to talk about how low that income rate is and the fact that it seems to be going lower rather than higher. So have at it, girl. <laughs> sure. Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things. It's, it's interesting when you talk about um, chicken contract farmer income, there's a lack of very concrete information in some areas, which is a result of the company's use of agristats that we mentioned earlier in those oh. lawsuits. Uh, They keep a lot of that data private. But what we do know from looking at USDA data, um, and and it's a little bit wild, the numbers, but we we know that if farmers are completely dependent on contract production for their livelihood, that up to 70% of them are living under the poverty line, which means that this industry does not pay enough for a family to subsist on and pay back their debt. That's very clear. Um, Many chicken farmers also have other other farming operations. They might have cattle or crops. Um, So if we look at the broader spectrum of USDA data, we'll see that while the top 20th percentile of family households with chicken farms, including all of their sources of income, it could be off-farm jobs and cattle and everything else included, 
have an income on average of 143000 which mm-hmm. is pretty high. Yeah. The bottom 20th percentile has an income of 18000 right? which is incredibly low. And so what we see when we look at these numbers that even USDA researchers will note as a red flag is that this is an incredibly variable industry. Um, farmer paychecks, because of the way that they pay farmers under tournament payment, are incredibly variable, and they can go up and down by thousands of dollars between flocks. Mm-hmm. The farmers have a really hard time budgeting and predicting how much they're going to be able to make in order to make debt payments and pay down bills and often get into credit crises and other just sort of everyday financial cash flow problems as a result. Really interesting. <clears throat> Joe, why do you think, uh, you, you had this quote in your piece, uh, why would poultry companies want their producers to struggle? Wouldn't they want to reward their good work and not bury them in debt as the suit that we've been talking about alleges, the suit, the class action suit against the growers? Um, and you point, as you point out, Tyson claims they want the best for their growers, that so they do admit that they reward growers who upgrade um, and we're going to talk about upgrading all the time um, with financial incentives. In your article, the the couple that you profiled, the Crutchfield, they acquiesced to upgrade after upgrade. And it wasn't until they were close to retirement age that they thought, oh, my God, I can't take out another loan for $250,000. But the point is, is that they, they went through all these upgrades and their financial situation never seemed to improve. They never seemed to like just as they were peeling themselves out from under the last, you know, stone of debt, they were required to take on more. And I, I find that just a fascinating cycle. I, I wanted you to go into that a little bit more. Sure. So, yeah. Um, I mean, to answer the question, you know, why would a company want the suppliers that it depends on to struggle? Yeah. Um, I, I think that that I think they need their suppliers to to survive and do well. Um, and if you ask Tyson this or I'm sure if you ask any other, you know, integrator this, they I'm will sure. say we 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 support our farmers. We rely on our farmers. We we need them. Um, why that gets tricky is because of the tournament system that right. that Sally mentioned Um because um, so, so basically the way it works is that uh, it's a zero sum game. You know, every uh, cycle, which is, you know, I think there's five or six chicken growing cycles a year. Typically, right. um, the people who grow the most amount of chicken meat for the least expense uh, will be compensated the most. So, so they'll that's, get more contracts. They'll get better birds. Actually, they'll, I think they'll get a better price. Per, they get a better price pound. per pound. But do yeah. they get somehow a better because, I, I mean, in uh, Chris Leonard's book, The Meat Racket, which I absolutely loved and mm-hmm. taught me so much, um, he talks a lot about the tournament system. And, you know, sometimes, like, if you complained, you might get lesser quality birds, for right. example, for a couple of cycles to kind of teach you to, you know, mind your yeah. manners. And that's a whole topic that we could talk that's about as well. Topic, and, yeah. and that comes into Gypsa and, and, and right. stuff we might get we are to, gonna talk about later, to later in the yeah. program. But but absolutely. So, so there's this situation where there's going to be winners every time. Um, And they might be the same people sometimes and and they might not. Um, But absolutely, there are always going to be the farmers who are doing well, which in the industry's eyes means growing the most meat as cheaply as they can. Right. Um, At the same time, the people there are always going to be people who don't do that as well. It's like, you know, it's like getting graded on a curve in college. (laughs) Um, And there's only going to be a certain number of A's. And and there actually there are reasons that are. Um, like we'll talk about with Gypsa, um, they aren't. It's not that it's a level playing field most of the time. They're right. getting the feed is different. There's variations in quality of feed. There's variations in quality of the birds. Um, and so, actually, it's not that everyone's starting on the same um, starting line. Right. But I, I, I think uh, the reason it ends up being unfair um, a lot of the time is because of this zero sum system, and um, just also. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if you think about it that way, there's some people who are always going to be struggling because yeah. there's more there's more farmers out there than than they need to have them all do well. Well, I, I think I want to stop for a second and, and just point out that listener if listeners who aren't familiar perhaps with contract growing, the way it works is that the company owns the birds, the company owns the feed. They supply the birds, they supply the feed to the growers, and Sally, you can correct me at any time, mm-hmm. um, and then they deduct, once the birds are grown and they pick up the birds, they deduct the cost of the feed um, from the ultimate price that the grower gets. And um, But basically, the company is risk-free, essentially, um, 
I don't think that the, uh, yeah, the, the growers are only paid for the birds that survive. And of course, there's always some death rate there. Um, but the company is basically risk-free and the grower takes on all the risk, which is why this contract system is, I think, to my, you know, to my mind anyway, fundamentally unfair. Um, but Sally, I yeah. want, <laughs> right? I, I would, ju- if I, if you don't mind if I just jump in Please on do. the tournament piece there, because yeah. um, it's, it's definitely a really important piece, and and it's got all these nuances that is actually being uh, exported into other industries. So it's really relevant to, to look at that a little bit. Um, but it, so you're definitely right. They the company owns the birds. They provide all of the inputs to the farmer. Right. They're, the drugs. The farmer is food, paid yeah. per pound of meat produced, and the company uses an equation so that it's, they don't quite deduct the cost of the feed from the final pay, but they come up with this equation of how expensive the farmers were to the company, mm-hmm. um, which we talked about. And, and and Joe is absolutely right. The reason why a lot of farmers get disenchanted and get frustrated is because while the company in the meeting says this is about how hard you work, in the end, their rank in the tournament is really determined by the company's decisions and the company's inputs. And I really like that analogy of it's like being on, graded on a curve in college. Yeah. Um, but imagine that before the exam, everyone is given slightly different notes and slightly different <laughs> slides right. to prepare from. Right. So some farmers are starting in the tournament at a significant disadvantage because of disease, because of just unavoidable biological risk in farming. Yeah. And the tournament mechanism is a way to pass that biological risk on to farmers. They become sort of shock absorbers of that risk right? um, because it's a zero-sum game. So I think that it's a really important piece to highlight. It's it's been called by economists as a brilliant mechanism to solve a lot of problems in um, risk management in the industry, and a lot of other industries are picking it up. Yes, I'm sure they. I, I mean, I know they're doing it throughout the meat, the uh, meat, animal agriculture is all. They're all adopting this chicken model. But Sally, I, one of the things that we've been talking about also is uh, which, and which also feeds into the tournament thing is the is the constant upgrades that are required. And you know, part of that is because of the advances in technology. But um, but growers are rewarded by, uh, as you as Joe pointed out, uh, by with financial incentives for creating these upgrades or putting these new upgrades into their houses or barns. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, about that, that housing and also the fact, and this is what I think is just so incredibly unfair is that every company has different requirements for their housing. So that means that somebody who was working for Tyson has to completely start from scratch, essentially, like, I guess, rip out his infrastructure or change his housing in order to work for another company. And I want you to talk a little bit about that and the impact that has on how farmers, growers cannot go from one company to another and thus remain sort of in this system of indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that the backdrop to those issues that makes it so such a vicious, vicious cycle for farmers is that this is a very geographically based industry. Mm-hmm. And you essentially have geographical monopsonies where farmers are very limited. So maybe there are 10 integrators operating in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. But because a company is not willing to drive more than 50 or 60 miles radius from the processing plant in order to take on new farmers, then you're really limited to who is in the driving distance in order to get a new contract um, so it means that there's a total lack of competition for farmers. Companies do not have to compete for their farmers. Right. And as a result, they can establish these sort of uh, extreme approaches to having their own specs for housing um, or for requiring farmers to take on, uh, to make really significant capital investments or upgrades whenever they want because they know that farmers can't easily switch. Um, and it's definitely true that each company will have their own preset standards for housing. So some houses, some companies want houses that are longer or wider than other companies. And if you are with one company, we've seen this scenario happen often, um, maybe you've been in the business for 10 years or so, but then the company has come back and changed the contract, and you're no longer making enough money to make your payments. So you would like to switch to another company, and you're lucky enough that there is another major company in your area that could pick you up. But in order to make that jump, you're going to need to put in another couple hundred thousand dollars in terms of investments in uh, the house specs, or it could be 
a different brand of heaters, a different brand of waters or computer systems, right. something else that that company requires, which poses a really serious barrier to transition, and, and it's a significant indicator of the lack of healthy competition in this industry. Right. And this, yeah. I mean, to me, that is the, the probably one of the most fundamental ways that the company has so much control over the farmers that, you know, once you mm-hmm. build to somebody's specs and nobody else is, you know, accepting those specs, you're basically you're screwed. So anyway, thank you for pointing that out. So, OK, now let's move on to something a little bit more macro here in an article that I just read in the National Hog Farmer, because I follow all the trades just love those trade magazines. Um, it was obviously the National Hog Farmer is a <laughs> it's a trade magazine for the, you know, pork producing um, industry. And it was an article about ditching the new fair, farmer fair practices rule, which was signed by the Obama administration just before the end of his presidency. And in that article, the following statement was made. I quote, if the current contract model becomes too risky from a legal or economic standpoint, they could significantly change the structure of the industry over time to one that is far less beneficial for the grower. And then I, my italics here, or my, my emphasis here, it, conceive, could, it conceivably could force companies to evaluate other production models that do not include contracting with independent family farmers to raise turkeys. Is that a threat or a promise? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound like a threat, people? Yes. Joe is nodding. Uh, I, I believe it does sound like a threat. Um, and it, it's one that we see made to farmers often, whether they're saying, um, it, I think that the basis of this is that they're saying, well, if we allow any type of accountability in the industry, then it will be too expensive for companies to contract with farmers, right. which is a which is a very, if you if you think about that, it's a very unfair premise <laughs> that farmers should accept being exploited, otherwise they'll lose their job. Right. Um, and I think that that's sort of a it's economic blackmail that would be familiar to any type of worker organizing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, it's economic blackmail. And uh, you know, if we had, if we had. Even during the administration of the of Obama, you know they were trying to move towards some antitrust re- uh, regulations uh, to put onto the meat industry, and they never really got very far because of the unbelievable power of the food industry um, and the unbelievable spineless nature of our Congress, um, who are all taking money hand over fist from these bastards. So, um, you know, they it, it never really moved anywhere. But that is what what we need to see moving forward is that there is some kind of antitrust uh, legislation. That that comes into play that limits the power of these of these integrators. Um, so one thing that struck me about that, though, is is the poultry industry is is pretty well automated as it is. I mean, that's part of the great success of the poultry industry is that, you know, if you want you can have poultry houses and have another job, you can have poultry houses and work other types of farming on your land um, because they pretty much run themselves in a lot. All you have to do is walk around and make sure that your feeders are dispensing feed, your waterers are dispensing water and you don't have too many dead birds on the floor. Um, so it's it's a highly automated industry. So isn't that like sort of saying we could go further and just basically get rid of all of you guys? And would that be a plus or a minus for the industry when it comes down to it from an economic standpoint? What, is it better to keep the grower in a state of endangered servitude or is it better to just go full on automation and have like one guy, you know, and a bunch of video cameras? I don't, you know, what do you guys think? It's really hard to say. And, and Sally, I'm curious what... What you think, I mean, one question that I have is if these companies were to go fully automated, um, would they uh, still host these facilities on people's private property and have them, um, you know, operate them? Or would they want to do it in some sort of more, you know, like a slaughterhouse where, where they own it? It's, it's, it's brought into the fold of the company's structure specifically. It's not independent. Um, and I don't actually know. Uh, what what they would do there? I mean, you know, I, I I did speak to a Tyson representative recently who who who, you know, said one of the challenges is is real estate. You know, like sure. if you, if you want to be growing billions of chickens a year, like you you can't necessarily do that on on land that any one company owns. Um, at the same time, you know, it, the 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 farther away you get from the human interaction with the creature, the, the less and less sense it makes. Um, so I'll be actually watching this with great interest, but um, Sally, I'm curious what, what you think about that. 
Well, I think one thing that's interesting is that, especially in the 60s and 70s, right, as sort of the contracting boom was building up, right. some companies did experiment with owning their own houses mm-hmm. and hiring employees to work those houses. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely um, land was the problem and real estate expense. Um, also, if you think about the fact that many farmers leave the system and new farmers come in and have the responsibility to build brand new houses, then maintenance of that equipment and maintaining that equipment, that was a burden that the companies did not find to be profitable to take on. Right. And there are many biological risks that they also have externalized to the farmer through these contracts. So there are many benefits to the company of putting that whole situation onto the backs of farmers through a contract and extracting the most profitable aspects of it. I think so too, um, because let's remember, I'll interrupt you just for a second if you don't mind, but let's remember mm-hmm. that the, that the, the grower owns the shit. They own the litter. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, in terms of like, and whether you're a hog farmer or a cattle farmer or, you know, who has a, a feedlot or a poultry farmer, you know, trying to dispose of millions of pounds of soiled hay of dead birds dead too. birds yeah. the litter uh, all of that stuff um and actually i want to I, I thank you for bringing up the dead bird thing because um i wanted to ask you i noticed somewhere i can't remember there was something i read from you joe or somewhere else that um that they have to have a refrigerator to store the dead birds in and i know that the, in the past there have been lawsuits um there was a lawsuit in the, in the chesapeake area with um against tyson i think it was because the guy had so much poultry shit and litter and dead birds that it was like basically a health hazard for his neighbors and yet tyson won the suit by the way um but but I think it's really important to to emphasize that the grower inter, you know owns all of the external costs and that that to me is what makes it seem very unlikely that they will become a fully automated industry but it is sort of an interesting premise to to bat around for a yeah, second yeah or, or would the would the economics of it change if right if it was fully automated you know would there be less risk I mean as Sally's saying you know in slaughter the economics are are you know, pretty straightforward because, yeah. you know, you get the birds in and the, and the meat comes out. Um, it's really that <laughs> biological risk that I think is what creates a lot of this uncertainty. Yeah. Are there ways of automating so intensely that you kind of can push back against some of that innate biological risk? Um, probably not, but, uh, but I wonder if, if technology will, will change the game there somewhat. Yeah, because I can imagine, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it is just speculation, but I can imagine like somebody like a Tyson want, build, basically building, you know, buying a relatively small piece of land and building a skyscraper on it that housed, you know, two million birds. I mean, why not? Like, why not? And then you have like a pit that all the stuff goes down into, you know, like just pretty much the same thing. Um, so and I, there I, might be, and they would say it, I, <laughs> there I, might be um, environmental advantages to, to doing it that indeed. way in, in a sense, because you're not shipping birds from, you know, so it's, it's right. sort of it's funny. Right that, next to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. And then plus you reduce your risk of avian flu and other mm-hmm. issues that come with, with having people walking in and out of a, of a, of a facility, which is, I mean, the biosecurity for these places is got, is really intense. I know that from, from doing the research, but I, I, I want to move on. Um, Sally, let's exp- explain this to us. How is it possible that growers have so little legal protection from these predatory practices? What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, there's one law that we already have on the books called the Packers and Stockyards Act. Right. And oh, good. We're going to talk law, about that. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was passed in the 20s. It, um, it functions in part. There's one part of it that talks about antitrust measures, but the rest of it should be the rule book for uh, integrators and large companies and meat packers. Mm-hmm. But um, for a long time, for several, well, for the past decade, many of our federal judges have been interpreting that law that if a company does something unfair against one farmer, that farmer has to prove that what the company did to them harmed all of competition in the industry, that it, that their claim essentially satisfies the antitrust component of the Packers and Stockyards Act in order for the act to be enforced, in order for there to be any um, uh, enforcement that the company should do something differently. So many farmers have brought very legitimate cases to court that have gone all the way up to, to being considered by the Supreme Court even that yeah. demonstrate um, documented damages, losses, even losing their farm as a result of unfair and, and discriminatory actions on behalf of the companies. Right. But these have been dismissed. 
And right now, there is a series of rules that have been proposed by USDA called the Farmer Fair Practice Rules, and these were put out at the end of the Obama administration. And part of those rules clarifies that the Packers and Stockyards Act should not be misinterpreted in the way that it has been in the past decade, and that it actually is there to protect farmers from these unfair practices. Um, But we desperately need that... We're at a very we're at a level right now where we need very basic uh, rights enforcement for farmers, business rights enforcement, because the industry has gone so far in the opposite direction. It's very one sided. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I we're we're going to do more about the whole uh, um, uh, Fair Practices Act because um, that's ba- obviously that's going to go away now that uh, we have Sonny Purdue sitting in the agricultural seat, and he will sail through his confirmation. I, we only have five minutes left, unfortunately. So um, there, there's something that really bugs me that I see all the time. Um, I follow, among other things, besides the trades magazines, where you would expect to see sort of propaganda that promotes the status quo. I also follow a page called the Food and Farm Discussion Lab on Facebook. And virtually every day... I am amazed by the animosity that is directed towards progressive food movement people. Um, that that you know we are somehow meddling in their business and um, potentially causing problems for them uh, by saying that we don't like uh, factory farming. There's a lot of stuff about that. They aren't faced by Monsanto. They love GMO crops and they think factory farming of animals is something that PETA basically thought up to screw them. So, <laughs> and they're all active farmers. They're all pretty smart people, and they're not industry shills. What what explains this divide? between, uh, you know, your average farming guy and those of us who feel like, A, farmers are being screwed, and B, um, we don't like the kind of food that they're be- <laughs> being, uh, you know, required to produce. Like, what is that? I think part of it is the, you know, the sort of cultural schism that you're seeing in our culture right now, which is this mm-hmm. divide between, you know, generally speaking, of course, you know, urban the urban centers and the rural heartland. And um, Sienna Chrisman has, has written well about this for civil elites recently. I think there's not a lot, you know, it's one thing to say, um, as many farmers do, that something like factory farming um, has some issues. It's another thing, I think, to not be directly involved in the production of food and point the same finger. Um, so I think that there's some issues there. I remember speaking to... Um, Kathleen Merrigan, who's undersecretary of agriculture. Um, under Vilsack in the under first Vilsack. Obama term. Yeah. yeah, and she... She's been a guest. Yeah, she, she said, you know, people do not understand the way food is grown in this country, and it starts with empathy. You know, you have mm-hmm. to understand that there's people out there trying to make a living, um, and, and people need to first know the facts and, and, and not have a romanticized view of the food system before they right. can start to critique it. So I think that that, um, and that's partially, I think where we come in as journalists. Um, and I think I know something my publication is trying to do is, is just to sort of raise the sea level of, of basic food literacy. And I right. think there's a lot of challenges to that, but I think that that would go a long way. Um, you know, I, I think beyond that, um, like we're talking about the people in these, um, uh, in these situations, sometimes who get into situations that look predatory, they're extremely hard workers. Yeah, um, they they don't have many options in their region in which to to make a living. Um, and there's a million reasons for that on a, you know on a policy level. But um, and and so I, I think they're they're protective of of their way of life, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And and one thing I I would love to see happen is not to just have these sort of two tribes um, speaking different languages, but to to, to sort of um, look at the gray between the black and the white, and 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 see what we can do to to have meaningful you know reform. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you there. Uh, and Sally, I'm sure you feel the same way. I, we have to wrap it up. So I want um, Sally, please promote your organization. Tell people how they can learn more about Rafi and what you're doing. And Joe, you do the same thing about the new food economy. Sure. I'll be quick um, because if you go to www.rafiusa.org, check out our new documentary film for a little bit more information. We have stories of 10 farmers from around the country who have been under contract for years and they can tell it to you in their own words. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's called under contract. Great. 
have a look. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen that yet, but I, uh, I look it's, forward it's to great. it. It's great. I can say it's 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 really worth watching. And Joe, um, tell us about New Food Economy and how. Yeah, so can it's uh, newfoodeconomy.com. Like I said, we, you know, we're every day we we cover breaking news in the food uh, world um, all over the all over the place, um, but also you know deeper in depth features, and um, so that's newfoodeconomy.com, and we've got a newsletter as well that you can sign up for that comes twice a week. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for joining me on the program today. And then I have a little PSA here, folks. Um, are you a member of the Heritage Radio Network yet? Hmm? If not, get onto the computer and hit that donate button. Um, membership not only supports the production and broadcast of this show, but also comes with some perks. So all current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. So join us on April 12th at Three's Brewing at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with the host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. And then a few weeks after that, you can meet me. I'm not sure where my event is going to be. I think it might be in the Tiki Bar here at, at Roberta's, but I am also publishing a book, which I'm sure you've all heard not quite enough about at this point. Not quite enough. Um, that is called What's the Matter with Meat? Um, and it and it really explores a lot of the a lot of the issues that we talked about today, but then a lot more beyond that. So meet other members, snag a signed copy of the Food of Taiwan, enjoy some beer from the um, Heritage Radio Network business member threes, and don't forget to donate at heritageradionetwork.org so that you can get your exclusive invite today. So remember, Kathy Irway's book signing is going to be at Threes Brewing at Franklin and Kent Wednesday, April tenth, from six to eight p.m. You can see that on our website. Um, show up because I will. Thanks for listening, folks, and thanks to my sponsor, and we'll see you next week with another show. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Searching for the truth.